pound per 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 pound per per pound Yo, 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 what's going on? Welcome hello, hello. to another episode of 699 per pound podcast, where we interview leaders and professionals from a wide variety of careers and lifestyles, just like the diverse food options found at a Korean owned hot food deli. Again and again and again, shout out to Listening Party and Canal Street Radio. Follow them at Listening Party Presents, as spelled out just the way it is, and Canal Street Market, both on Instagram readily. And thank you to all the fans and listeners that continue to support us. Yo, pause this episode and rate the podcast if you can, right now on Apple Podcasts. Follow us at 699, that's numero 699 <laughs> per pound. Screenshot this episode and post it. Tag us on your story. We will shout you out. Thank you for helping us get our name out there. And yo, much love to Anchor. You can now support us monetarily by setting up small monthly donations. That's anchor.fm slash 699 dash per dash pound slash support. Yes. So shout out to this young lady named Sarah Lee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she just like... She just hit me with like a Venmo, like, you know what I mean? Like she, I just got like, I'm not going to disclose how much um, she contributed, but it was a sizable amount that she just like Venmoed me out of the blue. Like, yo, use it for $6.99 per pound. I could have just like, you know what I'm saying? Use say, that, use I that commend for you steak. for sharing it with us. Use that for steak. <laughs> but yo, she just like, nah, like, yo, send it to the $6.99 per pound camp. So yo, much love to Sarah. Thank you, you know so much, saying? Sarah. Um, so Every yeah, man. Helps. Yeah, we're, we're over here live and direct at Canal Street Radio. Mm-hmm. And we have another righteous guest for all the listeners. Jojo, do you want me to explain who this gentleman is or do you want to go ahead? I can take it away. Yes, sir. So, as Jakey said, we have another amazing righteous guest. Mm. His name is Seth Berkman. Mm. He is a journalist, um, second journalist we've had on the show, but um, a little bit of a twist. He has been a contributor at the New York Times since 2012. He's also been published in The New Yorker, ESPN, other national outlets. And his focus is actually on sports Mm. with an emphasis in perception of Asian athletes. Mm. And we are catching him at this next exciting phase of his career. He is an author now. He published a book called A Team of Their Own, How an International Sisterhood Made Olympic History about the Korean women's hockey team in the 2018 Olympics. Let's give him a round. Sound effect, sound effect. Yes, yes, yes. So thank you, Seth, again for coming through. Um, I guess we'll just go right into yeah. the book first, right? Yeah. I mean, so for for those of um for those of y'all that will be watching this, I don't know when and how, but this is how the book looks like, and that's the author right there. Bang, bang. You know what I mean? <laughs> Representing Korea. You see the Korea. Korea. You know what I'm saying? A team of their own available in all major bookstores available now. So let's talk (laughs) about this book right here. I think on the surface, it's kind of a book about sports and like um, players and identity. But you also talk about how this book really explores gender and immigration and communication and that how do basically three identities of South Koreans, like North Americans who have a Korean heritage adoptees as you call them import.
sports. And also, towards you know, a few weeks before the Olympics starts, they find out they have to play with North Korean players. So, three, so basically, they pulled Koreans yes. from the diaspora and just kind of munched them into yeah. the hockey team. Right. Is that what happened? Essentially, yeah. It's like yeah. a peeping pop of female <laughs> hockey players, and then they just kind of, yo, here, go ahead, do yeah. your thing. Yes. For sure. God damn. So tell us about your book um, in a very concise way, it's just for our listeners who mm. are encountering it for the first time. Sure. And so it makes me think, I once heard a long time ago mm-hmm. when you're writing a book, Someone told me that you should be able to explain it in one sentence. Mm. I haven't been able to do that <laughs> just because there's so many layers so to much it. Honesty. But to give you kind of just a simple breakdown, to me, what the essence of this book is, eventually it's a search for identity, a search for belonging that I think anybody can really relate to. Mm-hmm. And what really sticks out to me is this give and take that developed over time. So you had, like you mentioned, players from Korean Americans, Korean Canadians, North Koreans and South Koreans, all forced on this one team together. Over time, though, you saw this give and take develop between the sides. For example, the Korean-American, Korean-Canadian players, like you said, the imports, they never attached much to their identity. They never felt Korean growing up. Um, It was just they didn't speak the language. Some of them grew up in rural North Carolina, so there were no real strong connections or cultural aspects there. going to Korea, living in South Korea among young Korean women obviously changed that. So Mm. they started to develop stronger feelings towards Korea. Then on the other hand, when you have the South Korean nationals, these half of the team were teenagers, 14, Mm. 15, 16 year old girls. Um, So they're growing up in Korea and they're at that age where they're questioning everything. They're having these thoughts and emotions. For example, some players battle depression, Mm. but they never spoke about that openly just because in Korea it's so taboo to yeah, you know, like the, the like, concept of depression is still very new, right? Yeah. I'm saying, yeah. Right. yeah, and there were even some players who had questions about sexuality, their mm. own sexuality. They just couldn't talk to their friends at school or people they knew in Korea about this. But when the imports came over, it became like an open book mm. where you know they basically had these Q and A sessions where anything they wanted to ask about emotions or sexuality, the imports would tell them oh, it's okay that you can have these feelings. And so, like I said, you had this give and take between the two sides. And I think that's what the book starts to really bring out is just how this sense of belonging grew from these two, from opposite ends of the world basically coming together and forming this team, this little family that they did. Yeah. Mm. And going back to what, you know, Jakey said about this is like a bip and bop situation, you had a really uh, crazy breakdown of how this team got recruited um, because, you know, Korea finds out, yay, we got the bid for the Winter Olympics. Oh, we don't have a hockey right. program. So can you tell us and refresh the people who haven't um, read the book of how they went about recruiting and how unconventional it was? Yeah, so in 2011, South Korea gets the bid to host the Winter Olympics in 2018. So they celebrate immediately, but then it dawns on them, oh shit, we have to create a hockey team for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Um, Hockey is a centerpiece sport of the Winter Games. No one in South Korea, though, really plays hockey at all. So what they did was the Korea Ice Hockey Association, uh, a a man who works there in the, the public relations department, basically he went on Google and he Googled women's hockey, college women's hockey teams in the U.S. and Canada, pulled up the rosters, and looked at names that sounded Korean, or if they had pictures, took note of players that look Korean. 
when I interviewed him later on, he even said the first few players he found were actually Chinese. Um, it was like a Yang and a Wu, and he never heard back from them. But is he Korean? He is a Korean. He's Korean. Yeah. Okay. And so, but he anyone who looked possibly Korean mm. sounded like they had a Korean name. He, he just had like an Excel sheet of all their names. Right. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and eventually, he stumbled on a few that responded to him. But at first, when they were contacted, they thought they were being spammed or pranked. Right. The emails had like broken English and yeah. random Korean symbols thrown in. It was like and, something at naver.com. Yeah. Right. Not even like, like an what? official <laughs> government like email account. And so the first person that kind of bit, you know, took the bait was um, she actually had an uncle who lived in South Korea. And so he went and he contacted Kia, the Korea Ice Hockey Association, and uh -huh. they verified. It's called yeah, Kia? Yeah, for short, Kia. Mm. Uh, Korea Yo, Ice see, Korea so <laughs> not great with <laughs> branding. Man. I know, it's like, oh, okay, uh, like the okay, car. Fine, yeah, okay, fine. Okay, well, cool. Kia, Kia. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, and they reached out to him and he was like, yeah, this, this is, is a real legit. offer. We're interested in bringing your daughter over here to represent South Korea in the mm. Olympics. And that's how these Korean-Canadian, Korean-American players kind of latched onto the team. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that they think just like you looking Korean is what makes you Korean. Right. You know, if they're looking at Asian faces, I'm sure some of them were adoptees, so they don't have Korean last names. So they were making like these assumptions. So that's like really interesting of how that was something that was important to them, that they were just Korean. But even if on the inside, they may have never encountered the culture. Right, right. And then, but I think maybe for this government official who yeah. had to put this together, his or her thought process was probably like, you know, is an easier way for me to possibly convince them yeah. To kind of like take a dual citizenship, you know, like maybe they are dual citizens. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an easier argument. Because there's a film called Kuka Depyo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like, uh, have you heard is, of that movie? Nah, huh. It's about the, uh, the the ping pong team? Or oh. no, it was the, the, the bobsled team? The uh, it was a ski jump. The ski jump ski team. Ski yeah. jump. It all, all, we're going through all the categories. Yeah, yeah. But it's about um, a. So the, it's a Korean film, and it's about a Korean adoptee who. Oh gets recruited to ski jump in Korea, right. right, to to represent Korea. And he kind of has this resentment of, you know, like, I, this is not my country, this is not my identity. And so it's a it's a, a film that explores these kind of things. And th I think that's what's so interesting about this book. And I was curious, like, I mean, you are an adoptee yourself. Right. And, you know, well, how much did that drive your interest in this particular story? And how did exploring your identity play into writing the book it it drove it a lot and but it also added maybe a different level of stress in terms of not wanting to mess it up you know in yeah. kind of a way um it, i remember one of the first days i was around the team and just like seeing them in their track jackets and it would have the south korean flag or their backpacks had the flag on it too and just seeing that image struck me in a certain kind of way I grew up never, in the same kind of way as many of the import players, never really connected to Korea or acknowledging my Korean heritage at all. And being around the team, it's almost like this patriotism came out of hibernation almost in a way. Like I wanted to be around them. I remember the day when I was leaving Minnesota to come back here, I was on kayak, like looking for ways to extend my stay just because mm -hmm. I still wanted to be around them and just be in their capacity. There mm. was just some kind of magnetism that drew me to them. And so in a way I did become very attached to their stories and wanting to tell them more. And over time, I mean, the whole process was about two years, a year and a half that I followed them for this book. And it, it definitely um, 
I, I don't know if I noticed it at the time, but there would be times I take a step back and just evaluate just how my own kind of feelings were evolving and changing. And people even ask me that now, how have you changed personally and your feelings of identity? And it's still very much, I feel an incomplete question. It's still a process, a journey I'm very much on, but I can definitely say for sure that that connection or even that pride of Koreanness is definitely much more within me now than I mean before. you're wearing a Nike Korea right. hoodie yes <laughs> looking very fresh you know what I'm saying <laughs> so I mean but I definitely I, I remember like for Korean American friends of mine in New York which is pretty much like the second biggest enclave of Korean Americans in the United States after like Los Angeles the before the 2002 World Cup and after 2000 mm. World Cup the level of pride yeah you mm. know I think that was kind of like the tipping point before K-pop, before like dramas and Korean food becoming more global, yeah. like that World Cup afterwards, like yo, like these um, like you know, cause um, within like the Korean Americans, like you kind of divide Koreans in two types, in like cities like New York, you either call them like yo, you're a fob, mm. as in like yo, you you're, you're like straight Korean, or you're like a Twinkie, which is kind of like a not like always derogatory, but it kind of has like, yo, yeah, you're right. kind of white on the inside. Like you know banana. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but after that, you're all the Twinkies. Like that used to kind of like look at you a little like, yo, you five or whatever. Like, cause you speak <laughs> Korean. Like they were like, yo, it's Korean. It's cool to be Korean like, now. Like Korean prided the fuck out. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Like yeah. after the World Cup. So I, almost I feel like maybe this was kind of like that event for you. But times 10, especially cause you were around as you know, the national hockey team, right? For sure. And I mean, a lot of me still thinks when it comes to like the Olympics and big international sporting events, a lot of it is just puff, you know? Mm. Right. Um, they try to spread this message of sportsmanship and peace. And it, when you see through the lines of it, you know, that's obviously that PR that they're trying to push out there. But th I it's do a have PR to, for nationalism. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I do have to admit, there is something that a lot of people get from watching international sporting events, you know, emotionally, and that you just can't get watching a random NBA game, I guess, on a Wednesday right. night. There's this Korean American baseball player. His name is Rob Refsnyder. He's adopted as well. Mm -hmm. He played for the Yankees a couple of years back. And I got to know him well when he was in the city. And sometimes we would just like shoot the shit in the clubhouse. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one day we were talking about like the Olympics and he said something that I could very much relate to, which I just kind of talked about was, you know, he never felt the strong connection to Korea. But like when he watched the Olympics or Korea in the World Cup, like he would genuinely or naturally just root for Korea. You mm -hmm. know, it's like when those things happened, that's when that Korean side came out almost. Yeah. So can you tell us about your background, too? So, you know, give, give us a tell us about your journey. Yeah, for sure. So. I was adopted when I was about three months old. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up in this town called Lakewood, New Jersey. It's about halfway between New York and Philly. Yeah, I know it's, Lakewood. It's yeah. closer to the yeah. shore area. And so I think a lot of my um, background and you know those feelings about not being Korean, there weren't many Korean people in Lakewood. There were actually maybe two or three other families that did have children adopted from Korea. Mm. But outside oh, of that, wow. um, Lakewood was a really diverse town. Um, a very strong uh, Puerto Rican, African-American population, Latin American population. So those were my friends and the people I grew up with. Um, it's one of the most unique, weirdest places I can describe it. Uh -huh. For example, like that's where Mark Echo's from. He oh. grew up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, J.R. Smith is from Lakewood. Oh. Um, I don't know if you know 
Double O from this rap group, Kids in the Hall. Yep. That were around in the early yeah, 2000s. I mean, he's, he went um, to UPenn. Right. And yeah. he's a Lupe's DJ now, his tour DJ. He, oh, I didn't know he DJs for Lupe. Now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and um, so he's from there. I know him well. His brother's one of my He used to friends. be in the city all the time. Yeah. He's, yeah. In, he's in LA now. But yeah, oh, okay. so you had all these weird, like, creative Misfits. minds from different. Right. Exactly. And so that's the kind of culture that I grew up around. And so that, that Korean side just wasn't there. But I knew everything else from whether it be like the hip hop culture or just, yeah. you know, the backgrounds. There was also like a huge Orthodox Jewish population in town. Right. So I knew more about what Orthodox Jews kind of did on the holidays and I did what Korean people did on the holidays. Um, so that's... You probably went to way more bar mitzvahs than... Exactly. Tours. tours. <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? For sure. Word, yeah. word. So what made you interested in journalism? And I mean, you went to one of the best journalism schools in the country. And what drew you to covering... Um, oh, shit, you went to Columbia? Yeah. Okay, okay. Life flex. <laughs> Life flex, life yeah, flex. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so what drew you into this profession and drew you into kind of specializing in like Asian athletes? You've written about Japanese baseball players and right and other... Um, you don't particularly just focus on Korean. You focus on the Asian diaspora. The pan-Asian. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. When, so I moved, the city, moved to the city in 2007, um, and I worked for the NBA at the time. They had this magazine called Hoop, which was... Mm. Like, I remember Hoop. Like, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. like the official magazine yep. of the NBA. And so I, I really liked it there. But then after a while, I just kind of got tired of covering sports. Um, when you're in that NBA mode, a lot of it can just be dealing with PR people. Mm. Right, right. And um, so that's why I went to graduate school. I was like, oh, I want to do... I want to become like a real journalist, quote right. unquote. So I did that. And then it just so happened, kind of one of the first things that came up when I was graduating, I had pitched some stories to the Times that were like sports related, but not about like games or anything. And um, they were actually working on the story. I can't even remember what it was, but they said they were working on that exact story, basically. But the editor was kind enough to be like, yo, come in, meet with me. And I did. And it just kind of snowballed from there. That's um, how you got your Times byline? Basically. It was, a lot of it was, I mean, luck, you could say. Um, but you just got to pitch and like stay yeah. People, you know? So I'm, I'm kind of like the the pocket watchman, and this is an occupation podcast, right? Yeah. So when I was writing like rap reviews for magazines, like before the recession, I was still getting like a dollar a word for print, mm. right? And when did you get this byline for the Times? Like 2012. 2012. So this is after the recession, in the midst of like when all the print publications were going fucking crazy because of iPad just dropped a year before and shit like that, right? What was Times paying freelancers at the time? So, what, like, you were working for, like, hip-hop magazines? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Because I started, like, I interned at The Source for a while and I wrote for, like, Source XXL Vibe and stuff. Word? So, oh, my what years? This was, like, Is that gosh, overlap? Like 2005 -ish. Oh, that was before my time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I did that... Then, Right I was writing from 07 to like 012-ish. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's probably some overlap there, but I would just say like, it's about the same that you would get for like a front of the book story for this double XL at the time. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, like that's a dollar great. a word? They, the way they do, they, I believe different um, sections at the times have different wit rates. Some pay mm. like a, by the word and some don't. And so um, for sports, it's always just been like a flat rate for an Got you. story or something. Got you. Mm. So, um, I mean, since this, you know, we're talking about like a real serious journalist right here. So, when I was like doing all these freelance journalism gigs in college, like again, like a couple hundred dollar checks here and there. And like, 
on the on the good luck that I might get like a bigger story. It might be like a thousand dollar check, like in a once in a blue moon. You know, my pops just looked at me like, yo, how the fuck you gonna make a living <laughs> doing this shit after college? Oh, you know what I'm so saying? Worried. Cause like Plus those you know, checks probably weren't coming on time. Yeah, like you know, I remember I had to chase down this one vibe check, which was only like three hundred dollars for six months. Oh my god. And I was like Yo, I'm starving. Like, man. how the fuck? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, holy shit! Like, am I am I picking the right profession? You know what I'm saying? And like, and this is before people figured out digital yet. And yeah. I remember at one point, this one editor was like, "I'll pay you ten cents a word," and I was like, "What the fuck?" You know what I'm saying? Wow, Yo, that's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, like, you were kind of like obviously in it a little before that, but you kind of experienced that yourself yeah, so yeah. like you know what was it about journalism that you kind of was like yo i'm gonna stick through this and as a journalist who was like literally experiencing the recession yeah. and just the changing right you know the, they call it like pivoting to digital but not even a pivot it was a massacre to mm -hmm. digital you know what i'm saying because all these print magazines had to shut down overnight right so like what were some of the thoughts sentiments survival tactics and for anybody who's listening to this is like even slightly thinking about becoming a writer in 2019 like yeah. what are some advices that you might want to give you know what i mean gosh you're making me feel so old right about now but, um, <laughs> not, like i remember my parents or my dad probably felt the same way too at times because i remember i was still living in jersey at the time and so like so i would commute in for the internship at the source and i wasn't getting paid for it only when i wrote stories i remember like giving myself though like after i graduated college like six to nine months to just try to make it work or try to get clips and you know build myself up yeah, we in a way were, yeah. and so it was like i would remember a lot going into events in the city whether it be a press conference or like an event at the nba store some nba player would be there or some rapper and trying to get know, a quote right mm -hmm. exactly and it would some a lot of times be a story i'd do online that wasn't for pay but it was a clip you know yeah and looking back that wasn't probably the smartest thing i don't know if i'd actually suggest to people now to do that it's weird so like i did go the j scout j school route and i have very mixed feelings about it i think it did help me ultimately but when uh, people ask me all the time like oh would you recommend going to j school and a lot of times i'll answer it depends what day of the week you ask me that question mm. some days i'll be super positive and sometimes i'll look at my student loan debt and be mm. like maybe not i mean columbia is a hefty check right and yeah. it was a weird time to go just because it was 2010 to 2012 i did the part-time program then. right and so that's when twitter was getting really big in social oh, wow. media and i felt like a, a lot of some people there just didn't know how to really teach it yet i don't know if you still know how to actually right. teach it as a, yeah. as a reporting it's ever tool, evolving but yeah. they but they knew it was important and i just got the feeling from some people that were so social media heavy there like all you have to you need a brand everything's about your brand yeah and that really turned me like soured me on it in a way and even like i recently just joined twitter to promote this book wow like, i was mm. one of the few journalists not on twitter forever wow. that's and, crazy because every journalist right. has that blue check right yeah and now you can't get it <laughs> oh no <laughs> but um uh -huh. but yeah like I, I mean i would use twitter for research and like stay abreast of news and everything but it just like I, I think part of it was just me rebuffing that idea of this is my brand online you know kind mm. of thing and um but yeah, so when it comes to the J school thing, it, it does have its benefits. And for some people, it might not be. That's a really hard decision people have to look at. And I think, you know, finances do play a big part looking into can you make that commitment. 
Um, just to kind of go back to your earlier question, though, I mean, it, it sounds cliche, but, you know, as much writing as you can do. Like, I like, I, I know some people say, like, once you graduate college, like, even if you're able to take a year off and just, like, travel and, like, build experiences that way, like, the same kind of thing, if you're able to just not want to dive in right away, but know if you're committed to something, experience helps so much, I feel. And just, Word. you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm curious too because I think a lot of the guests that we interview, we talk a lot about parents and like, you know, if they were strict or they kind of had like an immigrant mentality of like, you need to be stable, like, you know, you can only do these four jobs. Did you experience that at all? And do you relate to your friends at all when they, or Asian American journalists who's like, oh, my parents are not proud of me right now or right. going through that? Um, I, I don't really relate to it much. Yeah. Um, I can understand definitely where it comes from for yeah. me. So my parents, um, I don't want, they come from a Jewish background, mm. but they weren't practicing. Mm -hmm. um, so I never went to synagogue or anything. The extent of my Judaism was um, celebrating Hanukkah at my grandparents' house, basically. Yeah. And so, Some matzah here and there. Right, exactly. With peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I never had that really, you know, tiger parent kind of thing going on. Um, it was more so a traditional kind of parenthood that I felt most middle class kids grew up in. Like a John Hughes with. movie. A little bit, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah like sure. what I envisioned America to be. Right. And then I came to New York. Shit was like mob deep. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, to switch gears a little bit, I'm very curious about your process and pitching. So I know you, you're giving a lot of advice, you know, about J school and like having a lot of clips, but there's also an art form in pitching, I assume. And you had to pitch this book and mm. get publishers to buy into it. And we briefly talked about it a little bit when, um, before Jakey came, but so I work at Great Big Story and we make documentaries and there's a very notorious pitch process. 80% of pitches get turned down at our company and you always have to show like, why does this matter? Um, why is this surprising? All that jazz. And what's really kind of a connection with me in this book is that um, the girl on the cover, her name is Marissa Brandt and she's one of the um, imports. And we actually did a story about her because this girl, I'm assuming this girl, yeah, yeah, for people who can see. Um, so she's one of the this girl, right? Yeah, she's one of the players that Seth writes about in the book. But then for Great Big Story, the angle that they took was that her, um, she was representing the South Korean team, and her sister was representing America. So they were sisters, but they were um, representing different countries, mm. and they were, you know, they're like we're excited to like play with each other, and it was like a cute, heartwarming story. But it was really hard when I was pitching it to them because I felt that it was really important to dive into Marissa's identity as like, you know, a Korean adoptee. Like, what is it like for her to go back to a country she has never been to, doesn't really speak the language? But then um, the senior producer didn't necessarily think that was a special part. Mm -hmm. So as you are shipping these concepts and stories to people like how do you get a read on what they're looking for and how did you go about making this story attractive to publishers to give you you know sign the checks right um just as like a side note when it comes to like pitching for um newspapers or magazines yeah. the advice i'd always give is to keep it short mm. um you don't want to read through like five six paragraphs yeah. of someone laying they out want to see detail. the headline right, right right and and know your audience and know your material um when it came to the book um i i got really fortunate in a way there was 
I wrote a story like five years ago about this self-help guru almost that was working with college basketball teams. Mm. And huh. um, this agent reached out to me, emailed me cold and was like, could you put me in contact with this um, coach, the self-help coach? I'd like to maybe do a book with him. And so I, I sent him his info and very helpful. And I just kept his name on file basically. Yeah. And so when I knew I wanted to write this book, he was one of the first people I reached out to. I was just like, hey, we talked like four or five years ago. Do you remember? could I send you um, a proposal for this book I want to do? So the first stage of writing a book is you should really write a book proposal. Mm. And that can be anywhere from 40 to 80 pages. And it's basically the outline of your book, how you're going to market it, how it's going to sell, every detail. It's like a business proposal. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you're fortunate enough to get an agent, um, the agent will work with you on the proposal to get it to a point where then you ship it off to publishers and hopefully a publisher bites in terms of, um, you know, buying your book. Yeah. I, I was, I, I kind of took a roundabout way in getting to that point. My proposal wasn't actually finished by the time we started sending it out. A lot of that had to do with time constraints. We didn't send it out till December 2017. And so the Olympics were starting two months away. So there was so much that was still unknown about what might happen in this book. But I'd say at the time it was about 30, 35 pages. And it was just getting to the heart of, um, like you mentioned, like even with Marissa, like that idea of just what adoption meant to her and her kind of personal journey. I always knew that would play a big part of the book um and so that was something i really keyed on and emphasized with and and interviewed her interviewed her a lot about even before writing the book just to have that material ready for the proposal because i thought that was something that might draw someone an editor reading this in mm-hmm. who might kind of find something like that interesting yeah so and that's the thing the turnaround for this book is very would you say it's unconventionally fast because you had to be timely still in releasing it right so it was it was very unconventional from what i can gather and just talking to other authors and what yeah. i know can you give us a what, timeline yeah so i i didn't have a deal i went to korea february 1st i was going to be in korea all of february for the olympics in 2018 we finally got like the offer when i landed in korea so, so you, you basically a, paid pay for your own trip, yeah, yeah, without yeah. knowing. Right. If it, wow, you were gonna get reimbursed or not, right? Yeah. Okay. And so, sign the contract. I when I get back, basically that's yeah. March or so. And so, part of me is just on this high, like, oh my god, I got a book contract. And so the terms that they wanted, the publisher was hoping to put the book out a year from the Olympics so people would still kind of remember a year later February 2019 oh I remember the Korean hockey team you know yeah and so the first draft was going to be due in August 2018 so that gave me like five six months to write the manuscript Um, one of the big problems for me though that I encountered was since so many of the South Korean players were so young they were still in school and they didn't finish school till like June so I needed to have these kind of final sit-down interviews, in-depth interviews with them, but I had to wait till they finished school in Korea. So I didn't get back over there until the summer. Um, luckily enough, I had a great fixer and I was able to get all the material I needed. By that time, though, it's June and my deadline's like a month away. Oh my God. I was able to get another month deadline to extend it to September, but I literally wrote like two-thirds of the book like, in a month and a half, two oh months. My God. And, and that shit. And that's not to say like it was just on some all, like Charles Dickens shit. You just <laughs> oh like sat God. down and just yeah, like bang that shit out. I went to the library at Columbia Butler Library every day in the summer, like from when it opened to when it closed at eleven at night. But um, it, but I did have. I mean, I knew where the book was going. Yeah. I had the outline. I knew what I was gonna write. It was just a matter of putting that all, you know, 
into the Word document to over that two-month period or so. Yeah. But isn't this your first book? It is. <laughs> okay. And so, like, I mean, I look back now and partly I don't know how I did it. But yeah. I also think maybe that, that you know, pressurized deadline did help in terms of getting it out. Because like any writer, I do have a tendency to, you know, procrastinate. and But having that set you know this date on the calendar circled um definitely gave you something to strive for and so so when you were like um uh working on this book like um yo writing is a excruciatingly painful process mm -hmm. i think a lot of people who are not you know that that have never written for a living would understand um because you're essentially like creating something, but it's in you like... You can't hide it, behind it, anything. Yeah, like, but it's essentially, you just have to put these words together to create something that if a person reads it, it's a reflection of you. So not only are you like very self-conscious about whatever you say, because you don't want your colleagues, especially mm. your colleagues, to look at you like, you ain't good enough, you know what I mean? Um, so... For somebody who had to write this, like, how, 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 yo, this shit is like what, like 300 pages? Yeah, it's like 340 pages. Um, for something this long, like, and in such a short amount of time, like, is there any sort of like, you know, techniques or uh, processes where, like, you know, just like living methods that you kind of had to adopt during that time to meet your deadline? Yeah. Um, one, one, I remember a professor in graduate school telling me, you know, some one way that a lot of people write is they just vomit everything out and then they Edit mold, it. mold it together into gotcha. making something. So it's, there were moments like that where I would just type in a lot of it was nonsense for a thousand words, but it was getting ideas out there. And hopefully within that thousand words, there were maybe four or five sentences I could use later on and use as a base to write. One thing that I did worry about was you know, I guess like any debut writer, anyone who wants to write a book, I wanted it to have um, certain color or just esteem. So I remember trying to incorporate all these big words mm. and they ended up being Using places. wild thesaurus and shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what's, what's the synonym for this? You know? <laughs> and, and they were just eventually in places that did not work. And that was one of the main critiques that I had on my first edits. And it was something that I knew deep down too. So I was like, okay with being told these words aren't necessary, but there was part of me as I was writing, like, damn, I really want to like impress people and have right. people fawn over my writing, you mm. know? And so trying to do that while reach this deadline was something I would probably advise against. But um, in, in even in terms of life, I mean, I remember just, it got to a point where I decided I can't like work out, like I can't go to the gym just because I need that hour, hour and a half to focus on the writing kind of thing. And the day was basically sunrises. I would wake up, go to the library, and obviously I wasn't typing for 10, 11 hours mm -hmm. straight. I would take breaks, go for walks or whatever. But I knew from this time until basically when I go to sleep, the focus is doing whatever writing research I can towards getting to that finish line. <laughs> oh word, 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 word. So... Okay, so I got to ask, man. Um, I mean, again, like we are an occupation podcast and we do talk about, you know, money. Yeah. So what is like the ballpark in terms of like money, like as an advance? Like what can what can like a uh, like an up and coming writer yeah. who could possibly listening to this? If J. Key wants to write a yeah. book about J. Key, 
What can I expect? Yeah. It's the bag. What's a good deal and what's a bad deal? I actually feel fortunate. I feel like just knowing what some other writers have gotten and mm. just hearing what people get for their advances, I feel like mine was maybe a little bit more for a first-time mm. writer. It was enough where... I, I, it was enough to like live off of basically for like the time that I was writing the book. Um, I did do some other writing at the time, but when it came to crunch time, I wasn't doing any other freelancing or anything. It was en enough for the time period to write. So ballpark, like, say, I would say it's probably the same as about what a 25-year-old person makes in a yearly salary who works not like a white collar job. So like 50, 40K? Like in that mid, like not six figures, but like enough to live in the city. Kind six of thing. to 70, yeah, yeah. 60 to 70. Around that ballpark. Yeah. Or yeah. Is that for the full thing? Do you get paid a lump no. sum up front? No. Or you get paid like in quarterly? You get, the way I did it and a lot of people, they get paid in installments. So you get, the standard seems to be you get half when you sign your deal. Mm. Um, when you hand in your manuscript and it's deemed acceptable, then you get another... Um, like a quarter? Like another quarter. And then when the book actually comes out, you get the rest. But 15% um, of that goes to your agent. Of course. So they, they take their cut they out They take first. that chunk. And then, but also, so they're, uh, in your contract, there will be a mandate saying you have to meet certain guidelines for example if your manuscript is not deemed acceptable and you reach a point where you're not hitting your deadlines they can get that advance money back mm. so wow it is yours in a way but you still have to create a product so so like did they assign you an editor for the initial manuscript yeah I, I worked pretty much with the same editor throughout the whole time. There were other editors that came in who took like second and third passes of it. But for the most part, I had the same editor all throughout. Mm. So even with a man editor, like for the first manuscript, like you could still fuck up? Yeah. Theoretically? Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I, I worked, you know, I wondered what's he going to say to like this first part. And like I said, luckily the biggest gripe was me just using these words I didn't mm. have to. I mean, there were a lot of line edits and places where I needed more information and describe more things, but it was things that, you know, definitely could be incorporated. And it w never reached a point where they were like, this needs a total rework or we don't know where you're going here. They kind of, and that's one of the reasons why I liked this publisher was they knew what the story was about, kind of the mode I wanted to go through with this. And so they understood what I was going to be writing about and kind of the themes I was going to be touching on. So it was helpful in that regard. I mean, there could be people who maybe sign with a publisher and they get more money than they normally would, but the publisher doesn't understand Jack about what they're focusing on mm. and what the book's supposed to be. And so then you probably run into that conflict of you hand in a draft and your editor's just like, no, what are you talking about? And then mm. that's where It doesn't become your story anymore. Right, right. Yeah. So how does money work when, you know, it goes on the shelves, right? Like, do, do you get like a percentage of all the sales? Like, are there certain benchmarks where... Is it all negotiable? Yeah. And because like, I think in movies, right? Like, you know, the box office weekend is when like the the um, the movie studio makes takes the most percentage. And then as the movie lives in the theater for weeks and weeks on end, the theater takes more of like the percentage. Does it kind of prorate like that as well for books? So what seems to be standard is you don't start seeing royalties until you make back your advance. Oh. So your book first has to sell the amount of money that your advance was. And that's when you start to see royalties. It does differ a bit between hardcover and paperback 
versions and audio example, but for the most part, I think it, I think it's like 10 to 15%. Mm. So if your book's like 25 bucks, um, every copy you sell after that, you'll get like 250 for it. Right. Yeah. Um, it, I, and then I also think there are benchmarks where like, say if you reach uh, 50,000 or 100,000 sold, you get a certain higher percentage after that for each one. Right. So like, let's say if the advance was 60K, you know, you don't really see a check until you make 61K. Right. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So when you, so did you guys have like a meeting of like, how much is this book going to cost? Or was it pretty standard? No, I didn't know that until I saw like the final cover. They sent me like a version of the cover. So they so, just decided for you? Uh, yeah, I didn't negotiate that or anything. I don't know actually if that's something I should have. I'm okay with the price. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, in terms of that part, um, maybe that's probably something next time I should look into. Mm. But that wasn't decided by me. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I always get curious of like, why is a book, like one book like $6 and why is one book like $30? You know, is it just yeah. really the material I of think, the book? Well, the hardcovers definitely yeah. are more expensive in general. And to when, when it's a new yeah. book, you'll have that retail price on it now. Right. But, um, I, I remember just checking Amazon and like a week later, it was already like $7 off. And I was like, how did that happen? Kind of thing. But <laughs> wow, right, it's just okay. like a deal, I guess, you know, after a certain amount of time. Yeah. So I want to ask a little bit about the content of the book, right? So um, like I said, my, one of my homies who... Um, did this book about this rapper he told me that he kind of had like he doesn't have the life rights because it was an autobiography um but he has the story rights mm -hmm. and if a movie studio comes knocking and wants to make a movie out of the story that was used in the book like he should get like a cut from it or whatever like he structured the deal that way right so do you own any of the ip of this book or does the publisher owns it completely. So that was something that was negotiated between my agent and the publisher. For example, the book will be translated into Korean sometime next year. Mm. Oh. And so we were able to negotiate it to a point where we have we were able to negotiate the Korean rights with a separate publisher in Korea. Mm. Sometimes the publisher that has your North American rights, they will want the world rights or right. rights and global all rights. Yep. Right. And so that was something that we were able to do in terms of like TV movies. That's also something separately that um, my agent and I have the right to kind of negotiate separately with. I, in all cases, it's not that way. Sometimes the publisher has all of those rights, but um, in this case, we're, able to do that on our own so you have your the story rights of the book right right got you got mm -hmm. you and this might be kind of going into a little too deep about the ip questions and you might not have an answer for it but so i made a documentary right about um for asian american rappers so me and my partner we own the ip of the story right so if we turn that into like let's say a narrative film involving any of the stories that were involved like included in the doc one of the questions we got was okay so how do we negotiate that deal with the subjects mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying with you know this type of book obviously these are you know for 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 the artist that's in the film you know they're actually public figures so i think there's a lot more leeway because some of these stories might be out in public anyway but these people are just you know regular folks like that's not like a celebrity or anything so I'm kind of curious is do you have any insight on that like let's say if you want to turn this into other things do you have to like go to each one of them to get like a you know what I'm saying approval. Like, like approval and all that I don't believe so but there were some issues that kind of came up 
similar to that. For example, all the photos in the book are most the majority of the photos come from the players. Mm -hmm. So we had to get releases signed for them saying, you know, they own and this is me in the photo, et cetera. And then one kind of I actually thought it was a pretty funny thing came up. So in Korea, the way like media and journalism works, I guess, is it's not uncommon for people to be paid to do interviews, right? Appearances, yes. And so one of the players on the team was like, she like we were trying to get photo permissions, and she was like, "Oh, will I get paid for this?" And I was, it was working through my fixer um, in Korea, and I was just like, "No, we can't. We haven't done that." And she took it okay, but it was just like a question she brought up that I didn't expect anyone to kind of ask. But huh. I could see why they would ask that kind of thing. But right. I think a lot of for me, I never had that concern just because I was embedded with this team for a year and a half, two years, and I did have these you know tight personal relationships with mostly all of them and so they knew i was writing this book they wanted me to write this book and so i felt there was just maybe i don't know like an unspoken kind of thing that was there where they knew i was writing about them and i guess they trusted me to tell the story yeah um but in terms of if it was going like any other platform i don't think i would need specific approval from like each player yeah and how long did it take for you to gain their trust because you know you're a, a tall Asian man. And then, you know, they're all like teenage girls. And, you know, you might on the surface not have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard some interviews um, from you that said some players were harder to interview than others and shyer than others. So how did you build that relationship with them to get what you needed for the book? Yeah. And so the younger players were kind of the hardest ones to crack. And one of the reasons for that I learned was, so they all take English in school in Korea. Mm. And a lot of them are good. They're almost fluent or are pretty fluent in it, but they're super shy in speaking it. They don't think that their English is that good. And so initially I would go up and ask them these deep detailed kind of questions. And then they would just say yes or shake their head and kind of want to be done with I could tell they didn't want to talk to me yeah and so one of the players who was more fluent told me about that and so when I would every few months when they would come to Minnesota I would go out there go out there too to be with him and so I just tried to make my conversations very casual and, and conversationalist in a way and so it would create a sense of ease that I was around because they I mean I was staying in the team hotel I was on the bus with them to mm-hmm. the arenas I was yeah. in the locker room with them so they always saw me around you're like the team dad right so I wanted to make it known like mm-hmm. I'm not like snooping or spying or anything I'm, yeah I'm observing here and so once I was able to build that more like casual kind of relationship with them it, it made it a bit easier to communicate and like I said I finished the with the Korean players I did go to Korea for one final reporting trip after the Olympics and I hired a fixer translator and then we were able to have these sit-down interviews for four or five hours where we could really break down things and get into deeper topics and they were able to you know really let loose kind of in a way so that's dope um so yeah we talk like pretty extensively about the book um about the creation process from getting a getting the bag from the publisher to you know what i mean like handing in the manuscript um i think with all that experience combined, like if you could kind of give us a six ninety nine per pound exclusive, five or so tips, like from what you've learned from creating this book, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like if you could share that with us. The biggest thing I would say is, so if you're writing a book and you have a book coming out, you have to 
become your own PR person, basically.、Mm. Um, I had a publicist, and she was she's great. She does everything I ask, and she has great ideas, and she really works hard. But you have to take it on your own to reach out to people and get the book in people's hands. Basically, when I I figured that out, like. April or so, so the book was coming out in six months, and I remember talking to two friends who had written books recently,、mm-hmm. and they basically told me the same thing. It was like learning from their lessons. They were like, "You have to do everything, almost in a way." And a lot of the way it kind of broke down was, I find people or、um, magazines or podcasts, and then if someone responds to me,、I、and that's kind of how you got hit, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? I,、hey. I pass it along to my publicist, and she'll seal the deal of it, kind of to say. And so what I did was, I found every. Podcast with Asian American hosts and reached out to them and emailed them. I found every college campus that has a Korean studies or Asian American studies program and emailed the director and talked about my book and said, "Oh, could I send you a copy to pass around, or would you be interested in having me come to campus and speak?"、Um, every, literally, like almost every Asian American journalist, I probably reached out with an email at、mm-hmm. some time,、A-A-J-A、just hoping that right、shouts. that they might be interested or they might tweet about it or something. I. Made a list of actors or musicians or just public figures, social media figures that are Asian American,、mm. hoping for the same kind of thing. So I created this Excel document that must have like two thousand names on it by now. But you could start your own pub,、uh, publicity. <laughs> You know what I mean? A PR agency now, bro. <laughs> yeah, but that's what you got to do to just get the word out there. Yeah,、know? and、word. you joined Twitter for this, so I did. Yeah, my <laughs> yeah. Twitter game's still weak, but、um, yeah. Word, word. Nah, but that's that's a that's a great tip. Um, any other tips that you would like to share with us? When you're doing that, um, is in specific to like the Asian American or Korean American community. I was not surprised, but pleasantly happy to find how supportive other people are.、Um, like I was never involved much in the Korean American community in New York in the city, but you know, meeting different organizations or people that are journalists, they've been very supportive and very helpful, and that's been good. And one thing also, like when you're looking for maybe quote unquote celebrities or famous people that you might want to reach out to, one tip that I did found works is a lot of people have very Easily findable email addresses.、Mm. I won't give them away, but <laughs> a lot of people seem to just like to use like their Twitter handle or their name as their email address. So if you want to Twitter handle at gmail dot com, yes, cold call someone, you might. Find, uh, and if the shit、uh, doesn't bounce back, yeah, it right, went through. Exactly, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't hurt. Seriously,、yeah. right? Word. If there's like a few stories、yeah. that you could kind of highlight from the book, and if you could share that with us, like. Like you know, basically, like if this is an album, like what's like the few cuts? That's a good way to put it. That's just like we gotta check out. Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm yeah. Yeah. So I mean, everyone knows when they hear about the unified Korean team, they think about North Korea automatically. Yeah, tell us about that. And so the North Koreans, I couldn't have direct access to.、Mm. Um, they were just being watched over. Can can you give us a little more context? So、right. basically. Um, I know we talked about it briefly in the beginning of the interview, but you said that there was the Korean, the, the South Korean local hockey team that was doing their thing. Then they brought in the imports. The, the imports from like Canada and the United States that played hockey but were probably American citizens、mm-hmm. had to come in and join them. And then when did the North Korean hockey team kind of come into the picture, and why and、right. Did they have a hockey team before? Like,、so、they, how the fuck did this happen? <laughs> so 
it basically starts January 1st, New Year's Day 2018. Kim Jong-un goes on TV, state-run TV in North Korea, and really shocks the world by saying, I'd like to send North Korean athletes to the Olympic Games because mm. South Korea had been wanting to do that. They wanted North Korea somehow. A lot of it was so they wouldn't be like an antagonist and do anything attack or anything during yeah, the Olympics. Yeah, they have a pretty liberal president right, right. now. Mm -hmm. And so it, they really wanted to make that happen once he kind of made that olive branch. And so the women's hockey team just became the guinea pigs in a way. because So they didn't exist before... Kim Jong-un announced this? North Korea had a hockey team. Oh, because of their relationship right. with Russia, I'm assuming? And so one of the reasons, it's, I could never confirm the story, but all the South Korean players swore by it. They said North Korea actually used to be really good in hockey, women's hockey. Mm. Oh. And one of the reasons why, they said the reason why was because Kim Jong-il was a huge women's hockey fan. Mm. Oh, it was wow. just a weird interest he had. And yeah, yo, you know, with, he was a huge Hennessy movie fan as well. His library he had a huge movie collection. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, like yeah. 20,000 VHS tapes. So yeah, it was just man. another quirky thing he liked. And so when he died, funding for the team stopped. Oh. And that's when they started to decline. And so mm. the players were real mad because they knew they were better than North Korea. So if you bring these players on, our, our performance is going to suffer. In terms of stories, there's this really crazy story. And it relates back to Kim Jong-il and his love of movies. So in the 1960s, 70s, the most famous Korean director, director got kidnapped. Was Shin sang -ah. Yeah. And there's a player on the team, Shin So Jung, who's the goalie of the team. She's the star player. And that's in, the granddaughter. Uh, and so, in doing research for the for the book, she played college hockey in Canada for a few years. So I mm -hmm. interviewed her teammates there, and they all told me the story about how she would mention she wanted to become an actress after she stopped playing hockey. Ooh. And I always thought that was the most non-linear kind of weird thing. I never right. yeah, right. yeah. that. And then one day I read this Korean language interview with her and she mentioned she had a famous relative who worked in the Korean film industry. Uh. So before I went to South Korea for the last time to do my last interview with her, I just got down this wormhole one day on like Wikipedia and I was reading about Shin Sang-ok and I was like, it connected the surnames, both mm. Shin. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to ask her as like a joke. Yeah. I read you had a famous relative. Was it Shin Sang-ok? So I go and meet her, interviewing her, and I bring that up. And her grandmother's brother was Shin Sang-ok. Oh, wow. wow. Holy yeah. Oh, my God. That's and wow. crazy. And so not only was my mind blown, but then like it opened up this whole new layer of what was that like for her when these North Korean players yeah. come on and she has for, to What was it like for her family? Right, you right, know what I'm saying? exactly, yeah. To be around North Koreans, exactly. like, because they probably have a very different perspective on it. Yeah. And so for the people that don't know, Shin Sang-ok was kidnapped by Kim Jong-il and kept in captivity for seven or eight years, I think. To, to pump out, him like, and, movies. Right, him and his wife. Yeah. He married, like, the most famous actress in South Korea. Really? And both were abducted. <gasps> she was abducted first, and then Shin Sang-ok went to go find her, and oh he got abducted. God. Well. And then they escaped when right. they were like in, in Japan Vienna, for like they were a, in a film festival. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And they escaped to the embassy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah, man. But that's that's, that's a wild. That's story. Like, that's, in there. that's wild that that's all connected with the hockey situation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anything like any other like yo like you got to check this out about the book like one more maybe. Yeah, I, I do like you know the way you do get some tidbits about the North Korean players and not to get like too emotional or mushy on you, but so one of the import players, the one on the cover, Marissa, she's completely kind, one of the nicest people you'll meet. And so she became friends with this North Korean girl. And um, 
neither of them spoke each other's language, but they became friends in a way. Every day they would meet in the morning and give each other a hug. And But there'd be one point in the day that the player would come over and communicate to Marissa that she wanted to see her cell phone. And Marissa could tell that she never really saw a cell phone or even handled a cell phone mm. before. So she knew she wasn't going to call people in Pyongyang or anything. Yeah. And so the girl would communicate to Marissa just through her hands and physically to see her album of photos. And so Marissa every day would bring them up. And she said, like, in a trance, just for like 10, 15 minutes, this North Korean girl would just stare at the photos, like, of her and her friends and mm. her and her family and just have this deep train of thought, you know. And Marissa always wondered, what's she thinking about in mm. that moment? Is she thinking, like, oh, what would my life be like if I had Marissa's life or mm. I didn't yeah. live in North Korea? So there's a lot of that in terms of opening up kind of the shell of the North Korean players. And you do get to look beyond them as, you know, the tropes that you see in the news or on TV. By the end of the Olympics, they were dancing to, like, Red Velvet K-pop mm. songs. Oh, my gosh. Singing all the risky mm -hmm. lyrics to it, too. It became just, you know part of who they were with everyone else on the team right yeah. and do you know how close they remain today and i guess can they even communicate with the north korean players anymore no so they haven't seen each other or talked to each other since they left at the olympics um and that made a lot of the import players mad in a way like the day they said goodbye um the north korean players i guess kind of naively would be like oh yes come visit pyongyang if you can we'll eat bowls of cold noodles and they all knew that they basically had to lie to them because they would say oh yes i'd love that if i can but the chances of that happening are you know nil no. essentially yeah. and so that was really tough for them and so since the olympics none of them have seen each other <sighs> oh my Damn, gosh yo, that's just, just kind of deep yeah it's deep yeah no this is i think such a multi-layered book and i'd love for you to know um you know what is one thing that you want people to take away from when you know someone picks up this book and finishes it yeah i would just say that this book if i would have to explain it in one sentence it is about family and i think that's something very universal and something that everyone can kind of pick up on there are these different stories about north korea and this actually one of the players on the team was a child actress on degrassi with drake and what all these different what yeah yo i've seen players. those episodes okay <laughs> damn like this book has some characters <laughs> in there yo. all these tidbits and things but oh, at, shit. at the heart of it you it's should just... definitely try to make this into a film yo you heard oh, it here series, maybe yeah. <laughs> damn that's that's a lot yeah. of stories in here yeah that's great yeah that's that's wild man um I mean, is there anything else you would like to add, Jojo, about the book? Um, yeah, I think we, we pretty much covered it all. It's, yeah, like I don't want to give away anything, you know what I mean? Like encourage everybody to buy this book, you yes. know what I'm saying? A Team of Their Own by Seth Parkman, you know what I'm saying? Um, it's available wherever, wherever you could find books. I don't think I would have been able to come across it myself. So I think I'm so grateful that you reached out to us. For sure, for sure. And is there anything else that you would like to add that we might have like skipped out or like on? the plug? Oh, yeah. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Seth Berkman and Instagram, Seth.Berkman. Is that what you know, your publicist told you to plug? <laughs> yeah. Okay. But thanks for having me and, and thanks for doing this podcast. Everyone support $6.99 as well. So. Yeah, yeah, oh, for thank sure, you man. So much. Um, so we have a couple questions that we ask all of our guests before we wrap it up. Um, I'll take the first one, JK. Mm. So what would you say is the most important relationship in your life? And it doesn't have to be romantic. Mm. It's probably something that's 
relatively new, so I am not married right now, but I have two sisters, one younger, one older, and within the past five, six years, they've had children, and so <gasps> I have five nieces and nephews Oh, my now. gosh. And so while I do take a hit come Christmas time <laughs> in the pocket, but no. That's having, universal as well. Every family <laughs> does this, apparently. But having nieces and nephews is something mm -hmm. that I've really become the cherished, so. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, Future that's hockey dope. players? Um, they all have bad balance. Maybe <laughs> one of them, but I don't know. They're not very athletic right now, so mm. we'll see. Okay. Great. Um, so the second question we always ask our guests is, uh, what is your personal mantra? Right. I like this, um, and so I was thinking about it, and it made me think back actually to gra when I was in graduate school. And so I had a little crew, like we all hung out. We were all around the same age. We were a bit older, same way in life, and we looked at, J school and like the people who went there, like the younger heads and mm. all in a certain kind of way, just the way they had their outlook on life that was different. So we came up with this phrase, which is a pretty common, I guess, phrase you could say, but it was stay winning. And so we would like <laughs> stay winning. just say, like whenever we would see each other. That sounds or, like, like a DJ Khaled quote, yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. And like, it was like almost just like a motivational kind of thing. Uh. And like, it's something we would say and we would know like, we understood like we were on that plane that other people weren't. And right. so even today when I see them or they'll text me and just add that at the end of something. So, mm -hmm. and I think it's something I, I, you know, just in terms of just doing you and, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping that confidence up, stay winning. And also, man, I'll say this, man, like the more you say it, like words manifest, I always mention that, you know what I mean? The more you say positive things, Put you it know, in the universe. Put it in the universe. I think it's more likely to happen. You know what I'm saying? So on that note, stay winning. That's, stay winning. Uh, that's Mr. Seth Berkman's personal mantra. So on that note, um, again, check out the book, A Team of Their Own, available now in all major platforms where even your local bookstore might not be a major platform, but it's <laughs> available there as well. So go check it out, man, by Mr. Seth Berkman. Um, is there any other new project that you got in the pipeline or are you just busy promoting this project at the moment? Busy promoting at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some cool things down the line, though. Gotcha. Yeah, maybe a film. Maybe a Maybe, series. man, Fingers maybe. So, yeah, again, check out the book. Um, and, yo, remember, you could stream $6.99 per pound podcasts on all major streaming platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor shit you name it we're on there man and make sure you hit the subscribe button to be the first to know when a new episode is released we try our best to release it every two weeks shout out to the whole team michael marcus nicole yeah you know i'm saying we Julie. over here and uh most importantly man you gotta rate and share this podcast with your friends group chat colleagues yo if seth was able to find out about us that means that you, you can have find no out excuse. about us. <laughs> that you can you can find out about us, man. So on that note, it's another episode of 699 per pound podcast, Canal Street Radio listening party. Much love, and we are out. Hey yo, it's 699 per pound. Podcast. Hajima.